All right, we're going to be in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Last week we talked about digging wells, and we looked at Isaac's journey recorded for us in, in uh, Genesis 26, 17, and 18. And it says that when Isaac went into the land, when he was driven out of the land that he was in because God had blessed him so abundantly, he went into this land and there was no water because the Philistines, the enemies of God, had stopped up all the wells. And what Isaac did, he didn't go to new sources. He didn't go to different places. He went back to the wells of his father Abraham and he redug those wells because he knew that is where water was. That's where life was, in those wells. And this is relevant for us today because we see ourselves today, we see in our culture, we see in the church, the church departing from the faith of our fathers that has been passed down, the faith of this word we call the Bible, the word of God. And what we need to do is not look to new things. We need to go back to the old, the wells that have already been dug, and we need to unstop those and tap into the water, the source of life that God has ordained for us. Men fall into the same sins today as they always have because sin is constant across the generations. You realize this, right? This is why history repeats itself, because each successive generation is born in sin and death, and until they are born again, they will continue in sin and death, and they will believe the same lies, practice the same sinful lifestyles. So sin is constant across generations, and the lies of the enemy are not tempting us to new sin, but the same sin that caused man to fall in the beginning. As Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Here in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11, Jeremiah is commissioned by God to go to Jerusalem and to Judah and proclaim the coming judgment of God because of Israel's sin. Jeremiah writes here in verses 11 through 13, chapter 2, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid, be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This was the sin in Jeremiah's day. This is the sin that we see in our own day. Israel's sin was that she forsook the true God the God of her fathers, and took for herself other gods which were not gods. What we need to understand is Israel did not outright reject God. Israel didn't say, let's tear down the temple, let's be done with every aspect of, of the God of our fathers. They didn't do that. They kept the temple, 
They kept going to the temple. They kept worshiping in the temple. But what they did was they added other gods. They added other elements of worship from false gods into their existing worship. And so the national sin of Israel wasn't that they had just abandoned and wiped clean everything of God. It was that they embraced other gods and didn't see a problem with that. They didn't see a problem with claiming to be children of the true God, children of Abraham, and at the same time embracing other gods. You see this throughout the Old Testament, especially in the books of the prophets, where these kings would call on the prophets and they would want a word from God. These wicked kings, these kings of Israel and these kings of Judah, who were idolatrous, who were worshiping Baal and worshiping false gods, and, and yet they would call for the prophets and they would want a word from God. They, in other words, they wanted it both ways. They wanted to, in name, say they were covenant people of God, children of God, but they wanted to, in practice, do what they wanted to do and worship the gods they wanted to worship and live the lifestyle and the style of worship that, that was convenient for them in the moment. Israel did not outright reject. She gave into the seduction of false gods and false beliefs around her, and she fell into idolatry. And all of this resulted in God's judgment upon the nation. But the point of God's judgment is never just because God is angry and he wants to punish. The point of God's judgment is that God is just, but ultimately, God brings judgment because God desires restoration. Our temptation today is the same sin that we see in Jeremiah's day. It's the same sin that was in the Garden of Eden that, called, that caused man to fall to begin with. It is the popular appeal of the gods of our age that seem to promise so much more the sin is not rejecting God outright. It is embracing those things that seem more relevant and more appealing to us than the old ways shown to us in the Bible. But the problem is this leads us to idolatry. We can have God in name, but in practice, everything else we're doing is contrary to God. It does us no good to have God in name. God is not just something we wear around our neck or keep in our pocket. So when we need him, we can call on him. God either lives on the inside of us by the Holy Spirit or he does not. And we can say that he does, but according to Jesus, the fruit of our life will actually reveal whether that is true or not. So it may be more accurate to say that men today desire to keep God in name while seeking to change his name and his word to conform to their own vain imaginations. It is a sad delusion to think that we can change God. We can change the Bible. We can take all the gender-specific pronouns out of the Bible. We can 
change it up however we want, but we are fooling ourselves if we think we can change God. We are fooling ourselves if we think that we can, in reality, create God in our image and make him that. The reality is that when we do that, we are exchanging God. We are rejecting God, whether we believe we are or not. We are forsaking God, and we are embracing gods who are not gods. Or as Jeremiah pinned it from the words of God, we are making for ourselves cisterns that are broken and will not hold water when the fountain of living waters is there in abundant supply. So God does not change. In fact, God commands that we are the ones that must change. The scriptures teach that as children of God, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. People say, well, I just want to know what my purpose and my destiny is. Well, here it is. In Jesus Christ, your purpose and destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That means your life should begin to look more and more like Jesus. Not because of what you do, but because of what God is doing in you. I want you to understand this. God didn't give us a Bible. God didn't say, now here's the Holy Ghost. Now you go do all this yourself. No, that's not what God says. Listen, if we are in Christ, it means we've been crucified with him. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. Or Paul wrote it this way. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't stop there. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Who is working in you? Well, it is God that is working in you. And why is God working in you? He is working in you to will and to do according to your good pleasure? No, according to his good pleasure. Or listen to this, Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Men seek to change God into the image they have created for him, yet God commands that it is man who must be changed and conformed to the image of his son. God commands repentance. Repentance is man changing his mind and his ways to conform to God. Did you catch that? Repentance is man changing his mind and his ways to conform to God. In Luke's gospel, the Great Commission says this, that we are commanded to go and preach repentance. Repentance means that's man changing, not God changing. What we see today is much of the church rewriting the scripture and recrafting the image of God. They're changing God when God has commanded that man is the one that must change. 
God never said, go and make disciples, but when the social pressures and the culture get so powerful, just go ahead and change my word so it'll be easier for people to conform. You guys ever read that anywhere in the Bible? That's not in the scripture. Now, Jesus said in no uncertain terms, go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. He didn't say make disciples, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you to change about what I've taught you. It's been said discipleship is not complicated. It's just hard work. What God commands us to do is really not complicated, but we should acknowledge that it's not always easy. To stand up to the pressures of the culture is not complicated, but it may not be easy. To stand up to friends and families who may question your faith or wonder why you believe a certain thing or why you stand for a certain thing, it may be easier just to just pretend like you don't hear them or pretend like you don't have anything to say. And maybe there are times when that's what we should do. You know, the Proverbs says there's a time to answer the fool, but there's also a time to not answer the fool. Wisdom that we gain from God's word helps us understand when we should be silent and when we should speak up. But when it is time to speak up, we need to be willing to speak up. And we need to be willing to stand against the pressures, to stand against the tide that comes against us. So God commands repentance. That is man changing his mind, man changing his ways, so that he conforms to God. Repentance, in turn, produces restoration. God will bring judgment upon a people and a nation as a catalyst to bring repentance and produce restoration. What God wants is restoration. So it's easy for us as the church to come and gather in our buildings on Sunday morning And sometimes we do this as a respite. We want a respite from the world. People have actually told me this. I want to just be able to come to church and and get a respite from the world. I want to be able to come here and just kind of shut out everything that's happening out there and, and, and just get refreshed and encouraged. Well, I want that too, except that's not the only reason that we come here. We come here, the Bible says, to be equipped so that we can do what? So that we can go back out into the world. That's what the scripture teaches. So if we craft our services, if we plan this time on Sunday morning as a time for you to escape the world and shut the world out and pretend like the world doesn't exist, and then you go back out into the world when you leave here, what have we accomplished? You've got two hours, a couple of hours of respite, but now you've got to go back into the world. Now, the point is we come here to worship God. 
we come here to be equipped with the Word of God because our responsibility, our duty, this is why the Bible uses militaristic language. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, and he says, Pastor Timothy, endure hardship like a good soldier. Pastor Timothy, wage the good warfare. Or he writes to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. Stand against the wiles of the enemy. And after you have stood and have done all to stand, continue to stand. And you, you see that we can't do that if we're not equipped to do that, if we're not trusting God to do that work in us. So this time is not escape time. This is equipping time because we are charged by God to go back out into the world and make a real difference. Men have rejected the fountain of living waters. This is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. And they have hewn for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, men have rejected God and they have rejected his Christ. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well is there and, and, and Jesus is there and she comes to draw water. And Jesus said, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. And the woman said, well, why didn't you tell me that before I drew this water? She said, but how can you give me living water? You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get water from this well? This well is deep. This is Jacob's well. This is the well of our fathers. Jesus is the living water. He is the water that Abraham's wells and Jacob's wells and everybody else's wells represented. When Isaac went back and dug the wells of his father, what that represents for us is that we need to go back to the source of living water, and Jesus is the source of living water. That we shouldn't be digging wells or making cisterns of this world system and of the worldly gods in the worldly ways, but we need to go back to the ways that God has shown us and has provided for us. The church has compromised. The people of God have rejected the fountain of living waters, and they have made for themselves cisterns, but these cisterns will not hold water, so they cannot sustain life. Now, if you have a bucket that has a hole in it and you get a really good rain, you know what's going to happen to your bucket? It may, it may get water in it, but you know what's going to happen sooner than later? All that water is going to leak out. And the point of these cisterns that won't hold water is not that they could never have any water in them, but they'll never hold water. Therefore, they'll never be able to sustain life. Whereas the contrast there is not a, a cistern that is not broken. The contrast is a fountain of living water. And a fountain of living water is not a bucket, a vessel that holds water. It is a source of water that flows. It's where you can go to and you as a vessel can be filled up. This is who Jesus is. This is what happens when we reject God. We reject the source of of living water. God commands that man 
go to that source, tap into that source, and not create for himself his own sources. These broken cisterns are false gods and false beliefs. They are the idols that men worship, that men give themselves to. Through these idols of false belief, men forsake God. Men seek to change God into the image that they have created in their own self-centered imaginations and desires. But they are deceived, for God cannot be changed. God commands that man must be changed. That change in man can only occur by the grace of God that works through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about repentance, we're not talking about you trying really, really hard to be a different person. Repentance is you turning to God and confessing that no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, you cannot change yourself. You cannot become a new person. You cannot give yourself a new heart. You cannot give yourself a new nature. Your only hope is that you be crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and then God raise you up in new life. His life. Not your old improved one, but His new life. And in that resurrection life, now you begin to walk in the newness of life. Jeremiah writes in this verse, he warns the people. Listen to what he says. He says, be astonished in verse 12. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. If we understand the times, we should be astonished. And the fear for those who have forsaken God, we should understand that it is a fearful thing to forsake God. And if we look around at the times we're living in, we see not just the world, because we expect the world, because the world lives in rejection of God. You know, we don't read the Bible carefully enough sometimes. Jesus made this very clear at the beginning of his ministry. It's recorded for us in John chapter 3 when he says, the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why? Because the world was already under condemnation when he came. That's what Jesus said. The world was already condemned. Those who believe in me, those who trust in me, will not be condemned. But those who do not are already condemned, Jesus said. This is why Jesus didn't have to come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Jesus came to save the world from the condemnation the world was already under. So when we look at people in the world who are unbelievers, who reject Jesus Christ, it's inaccurate to say that God will condemn them. No, they're already condemned. The question is not, will God condemn them? The question is, will God save them? Because until God saves them, unless God saves them, they are already condemned. And they have no hope whatsoever. That's the place we must come to. As believers, I'm trusting that is a place you have come to, where you looked at your life and you said, I am hopeless. 
I have no hope of saving myself. My only hope is Jesus. And you turn to Jesus in your mind and in your heart and in your actions. And you repent. So the problem is not the world. The world is the world in sin already condemned. The problem is the people of God. The problem are those who profess to not be the world. For those who profess to have faith in God. I got a letter from a pastor inviting me to a forum. And this pastor is a pastor in a church that has made a, a very clear statement in opposition to the scripture about certain social issues. The problem is not the unbeliever out there. The problem are those people who claim to be believers who are teaching people false doctrine, lies. It's okay to be a homosexual. A homosexual, it's not sinful. God accepts it. God does not see that as sin any longer. It's okay. Abortion is not murder. Abortion is just the removal of some tissue. And if you have an abortion, that's okay. God understands. No, it's not okay. It's sin. If you're a man out there chasing after women... That's sinful. If you're a woman out there chasing after men, that's sinful. If you're a man out there chasing after men, that's sinful. Or women after women. You know, we don't need to discriminate here. Let's call it what it is. Let's go back to the Bible and not pick and choose, but let's, let's just present the truth. If you're a thief, stop stealing. It's a sin to steal. I remember the kids, it was, it was a few years ago, that the, the word on the street was, if you, if you steal something from Walmart less than $5, it's not stealing. Because Walmart can afford it, and it's owed to me. No, it's stealing. It doesn't matter what it is. It's stealing, and it is a sin. Sin's not defined by the monetary value of something. Sin is defined by the simple act. Is it yours? Then don't take it. Because if you take it and it's not yours, you stole and you've committed a sin. People, the people of God are the ones that have compromised. The world can't compromise because the world has nothing to compromise. The world has no standard to compromise. It's in sin. It's in rejection of God. It's the church that has a standard. So the church, the people of God, the, those who profess to be the people of God are really the only ones that can compromise. They're the ones that profess to have a standard that can be compromised. So if we look around at the times we live in, we begin to understand them, we should be astonished and we should be fearful for those who profess faith, but have in reality rejected it. God in his long suffering considers the individual and the corporate sin of a people in his judgment of a nation. This is what we see happening in Jeremiah's warning to Jerusalem and the people of Judah. 
God is going to judge them for their chronic, persistent sin over generations, specifically for the sin of forsaking him and going after other gods and for the subsequent sinful abominations they committed in their idolatry. Two of the most egregious consequences of forsaking God was the abomination of offering their children in sacrifice to false gods and the murder of the prophets who spoke the truth, warning them to repent of their sin and of God's impending judgment. This is referenced for us in Jeremiah's prophecy. In Jeremiah, in this chapter, in chapter 2, when you get down to verses 34 and 35, let me read this to you. Jeremiah 2, 34 and 35, also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search. In other words, it was out there in plain open. It wasn't hidden. It was out there for all to be seen. But plainly on all these things, yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned. This is what... This is what the church is doing. The church has turned away from God, and they are saying, we've not sinned. Abortion, it's not a sin. Homosexuality, it's not a sin. And if you are teaching people that it is a sin, you're hateful, you're a bigot, and you're not really a Christ follower. Yet, if we believe our Bible, and that's the question, do you believe your Bible? Or do you believe this is an outdated book? Do you believe that what God said in Leviticus doesn't apply anymore in the New Testament? Or what Jesus said even doesn't apply today? Or what Paul wrote doesn't apply today? Because we live in a different time. And you may not realize how many people are saying that, but there are a lot of people saying that. And many of those people are people who profess to be followers of Jesus. There are churches right now people are sitting in and there are pastors telling their congregations those things. Now, what do we do? I'm telling you one thing. Some other pastor's telling his people another thing. You know what some people say? Some people say, I don't know what's true. I'm just done with it. I think I'll just... I'll just uh, do my own thing. Oh, so you're going to create your own God and worship your own God. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, I just don't know who to believe. You say one thing, this other pastor. No, listen, don't believe me. I'm going to tell you right now, Christ Fellowship Church, don't believe me. Believe God and his word. If I say something to you that doesn't line up with this, you need to call me on that because I should not be up here giving you my opinion about what I think. I am tasked, I am responsible to come up here and give you God's word and tell you the truth, even if it is painful, even if it may be unpleasant. This is what men are unwilling to do. This is what Jeremiah did, and it cost Jeremiah. God told him, you go tell them the truth and don't you worry about what they say or what they do. I got your back. It wasn't pleasant for Jeremiah for those 25 years that he preached the truth. And at the end, guess what happened? Israel was judged. They did not repent. 
They persisted in their lie. But here's the good news. Here we are today. You know what that means? That means in spite of Israel's hardness, in spite of God's judgment, in spite of 70 years of captivity, God kept his promise. God sent his son. Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin. If we trust in him, he becomes our life. He, he is our refuge. He is the promise fulfilled by God the Father. And here we are today, children of God, in spite of all of Israel's hardness, in spite of her sin, in spite of the countless times that God had to bring judgment upon them. We live in a nation right now that since 1973 has oversaw the legal murder of over 60 million babies. We have Christians fighting for political candidates today who openly support women murdering their babies. Yet they say it's okay because, because why? I don't care what letter they have in front of their name. I don't care what promises they make to a people or to a nation or to a state. If they support the murder of babies, they they need our prayers. They certainly do not need our vote. Say, Pastor Jeff, you're not supposed to get political. I'm not getting political. This has nothing to do with politics. This is a spiritual issue. This is about the future of our nation. I live in a nation because God chose to, to birth me here in America. I didn't choose to be an American, though I am thankful I did. I am. God chose for me to be an American. And I'm very thankful for that. And I'm watching this nation falling under. It's not coming, it's here. The judgment of God is here. The question is, how, how much heavier will it get? And if the church doesn't stand up for what is right, and begin to do what Jesus has commanded it to do, what, what are we left with? Do we think God's going to just keep ignoring the murder of innocents? Did you hear what he said? Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret, but plainly on all these things. We're not ashamed of abortion. We got people that are promoting it who think it's the most wonderful thing. We got politicians and public people of influence who say that it's a godly thing. It's not a new sin. This is exactly what God said about his people in Jeremiah's day. And where were the people of God standing up for the innocent? Well, in Jeremiah's day, many of them weren't standing up for him. Jeremiah was. And judgment came to a nation. Don't think judgment will not come to this nation. It will come. It will come. It has come. It will continue to come. The question is, what will be its ultimate end? And I'll tell you who has the key to that. It's not the world, it's the church. The church holds the key to what will happen to this nation. It's not the atheist out there. Stop pointing fingers at the atheist. 
We need to start looking at the house of God. Judgment begins in the house of God. The problem's not all the atheists out there. The problem are, is all the people who profess to be Christians but support abortion and support sinful lifestyles. The problem is all the Christians who call evil good and good evil. That's the problem. Jesus calls us salt and light. We are to discern the times and respond accordingly. We're to be a preserving agent. We're to be advancing light in the darkness. We're to be a catalyst for transformation in our culture. But this cannot and will not happen through compromise. In the face of chronic compromise, how are the people of God to respond? And that response, the answer to that is repentance. Repentance is the proper response to sin, to any sin, to my sin, to your sin, to any sin. Repentance and restoration is what God wants. He wants it individually and he wants it corporately. When God judged Israel as a nation, he was judging her corporate sin. But do you know what her corporate sin was? It was just the sum total of all their individual personal sins. It was each person in their sinfulness refusing to repent. That's what, that's what the judgment was. God doesn't just look at a nameless, faceless mass of humanity and say, I'm going to judge them. No, God knows each of us personally and individually. He knows our sin. And it's the culmination of each of our sins. My sin, your sin, the sins of every one in this nation, especially those who profess to be followers of Christ, that will ultimately culminate in God's judgment upon this nation. What we do affects us. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. What I do affects myself. What you do affects yourself. But we don't live separated lives. The Bible says we are one in Christ. Romans 12, 5. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This makes clear that we are not only joined individually to Christ as many members of his body, but we are individually members of one another. Repentance, therefore, is what we do personally for ourselves as individuals, but it is also what we do personally for one another as a corporate body. In other words, don't just pray and seek repentance for yourself and your individual sins, but pray and seek repentance for the greater body and for the corporate sins. Pray for Pastor Jeff and his sins. Pray that God would grant him repentance, that he would not be part of the problem, but he would be part of the solution. And I will do the same for you. I'll pray for my own sins, but I will also pray for the sins of the greater body. I hope you're not only praying for your own sins, but I hope you're praying for the sins of the greater body. What we do has an effect on the whole body. And we're given this privilege to intercede for one another as we come to be in Christ. 
because Christ is the one that is ever interceding on our behalf. If the prayers of God's people in repentance and reliance upon God's grace in Jesus Christ would become fervent for one another, we would see those prayers avail to the glory of God and to the healing and restoration of our nation. This is what James writes. He says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Our prayers are not just about our personal needs. Our prayers should be about our personal sin and the sins of the greater body. Our prayers should be pleas of mercy to God, that God would have mercy upon us and heal and restore us. Healing, repentance, and restoration will come with obedience to Jesus. That's the bottom line. Until we are obedient to Jesus, there will be no restoration and there will be no healing. We're called to pray. We're called to repent. We're called to seek God's face. This is what we see in the Old Testament. God's words to Solomon. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. We're called to the fight. And the greatest way we can fight is on our knees. We begin our warfare in the battleground of our own heart and our own mind. And from there we move out praying and interceding for one another. All the while we are commanded to go to advance the kingdom, to make disciples, to teach them to do the same in obedience to Jesus, to obey is better than sacrifice, is what the prophet told the king. And this is the word of the Lord to each of us. To obey is better than sacrifice. This is our sin that we have forsaken the fountain of living waters and we have hewn for ourselves cisterns that will not hold water that cannot sustain life. God is calling his church back to himself, a return to Jesus. Let's get ready to come to the table. It's a hard word, but it's not a word void of God's joy. Because God wants us to find joy in serving him, joy in obeying him, joy in even being persecuted for him. You say, well, we're not to that point yet, Pastor Jeff. We're not to that point yet. In, in the ways we often think, but what about our children and our grandchildren? What is the world going to be like? What's the nation going to be like for them if we don't begin right now to believe God for things to change for his glory? Amen.
Let's all stand. As you stand, I want you to look around. You are the body of Christ, young and old, black and white, brown, <laughs> yellow, red, doesn't matter. We all have red blood. We've all been given through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit, and it is Christ who identifies us. Jesus came to break the power of sin and death so that we could obey, so that we could be free from sin, not free to sin. We are not saved because we obey well. We are saved because Jesus obeyed well, his Father, and lived the perfect, sinless life that we could never live. Trust in Jesus and know that your sins are forgiven and taken away as far as the east is from the west. Trust in Jesus and be the salt of the world and the light of the world. Make a difference through your living and your praying. Make a difference for yourself and make a difference for one another for the glory of God. Seek him with all your heart and pray that he will hear and he will heal our land before we suffer a greater judgment than has already come. Call upon him. The Bible says he will answer and he will not put you to shame.